Welcome to Off-Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. In this podcast, I talk with artists about their creative process, what excites them, ignites them, feeds and inspires them. My guest today is actor, playwright, and visual artist Herbert Siguenza. Herbert is a founding member of the performance group Culture Clash, along with Richard Montoya and Rick Salinas. Culture Clash has been performing for over 35 years and is the most produced Latino theater group in the United States. They've appeared at the Mark Taper Forum, the Kennedy Center, the Berkeley Rep, Arena Stage, Yale Rep, and countless other theaters and universities around the country. In addition to his work with Culture Clash, Herbert has created many plays and solo performances in his own right and is currently the playwright-in-residence at the San Diego Repertory Theater. As an actor, he's appeared in a number of TV and film roles, and he acted as a cultural advisor and voiced two characters in the Academy Award-winning film Coco. He's also an accomplished visual artist who has exhibited both nationally and internationally. Hi, Herbert. Welcome to Off-Leash Arts. Oh, great to be here and great to hear you once again. I remember uh, running around with you in the 80s in Berkeley. Yeah, I know. I remember seeing you guys for the first time back in 88 when I was a wee young thing and just moved to the Bay Area. <laughs> I saw you guys at La Pena and I remember just being so blown away at how hilarious and brilliant and politically. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that I look at our work back in 88 and now, you know, 30, 35 years later, we're basically doing the same work. I mean, I don't think we've changed uh, ideologically or I just think uh, aesthetically, maybe we've probably grown a lot, but, uh, but we're basically saying the same message. And that's one of inclusion. That's one of, of, um, of, you know, social activism, basically. And, but I, I think we've just gotten a lot, you know, artistic, a lot more, we're just better at saying what we're trying to say. You know, back then we were, uh, we were raw and, and, <laughs> and young and, and sexy. And, <laughs> and so all that helped, but you know, now that we're older, you, you can't, you know, you can't get away with that stuff. So um, you have to be a little uh, more sophisticated. Mm, yeah. Well, you do a lot of different things, acting and writing and painting and how do those different ways of expressing yourself do they feed and nourish different parts of you do you feel like I guess so I it's hard to explain I was I've been a visual artist all my life since I was a kid um, I was just born with the, the gift to draw and I was really good at drawing in fact I had a one kid show like a one boy a solo show at the <laughs> at the the Department of Education in San Francisco on, in their hallways, right? I was like seven. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, uh, a teacher of mine saved all my drawings. She didn't tell me this, by the way. She saved all my drawings that I did in class, and then we quietly had a field trip to downtown San Francisco to see the mayor's office, which was, you know, amazing. And then we went across the street to the Department of Education to the, uh, uh, and then uh, in the hallways, there was my, an exhibit of mine. And she did not tell me. And imagine at seven and, every, you know, all, all the kids were going, oh, my God, this is great. Your boss. Uh, that's what we'd say back then, boss. Oh. And, uh, yeah, your boss. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that that one gesture that that teacher launched me to become an artist, you know, at seven. I knew that I was going to be an artist so that I could do it. Right. Yeah. 
Her name is Mrs. Sharp. I still remember her. And um, and then after that, I, I went to uh, College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland. And I got a degree in printmaking. And, and I worked at La Raza Silkscreen Center in San Francisco's Mission District for 10 years. And I did uh, many, many community posters there and political posters, uh, cultural posters. Then I got a degree at CCAC, and then then I started theater. I actually started theater while I was in college, so I'm a late bloomer, and I don't have any formal training in theater or writing. And so when we formed Culture Clash, it was really out of a need to fulfill something that we didn't have access to, and that was, you know, we weren't getting cast as Latinos. We weren't getting cast at ACT. We weren't getting cast in any of the theaters. Uh, Latino plays were unheard of back in the early 80s, right, in the regional sense. So we we formed Culture Clash because we had a, a need to write about our reality, you know. And I think that's why Culture Clash became very successful very early because we were definitely feeling a need. And we found an audience that was bilingual, that was bicultural, that also grew up like us, Latinx people that, you know, we grew up, we're second generation. Um, growing up in the United States, uh, you know, our parents weren't in the fields. They were uh, blue-collar workers in the city. And so we grew up in the city. Some of us went to college, and English was our first language. So this is, you know, these are millions of people like this. And I think, you know, we were the first group to talk about this dichotomy of, of cultures being bilingual, being bicultural. Mm. and growing up in a Spanish-speaking household. So it's a very particular uh, reality, but it's, you know, in the millions. And so we we found a big audience when we started. Then we moved to L.A., and of course, L.A., that's the, the epicenter of Mexican-Americans. And so we found a huge audience in L.A., and that's why we, we moved from uh, the Bay Area to L.A., because we, we knew that we could make a living just staying in L.A. and doing theater, and that's why we stayed there. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about people's creative process. So I'm wondering, like, what does it look like when you guys are creating a show as a group? And how is that different if you're, you know, writing a play on your own or creating a solo work, something like that? That's a very good question. You know, I'm now a playwright in residence, right? And, um, you know, I've always said that actors, actor writers, especially comedians, satirical, you know, writers... They don't get any respect as playwrights, you know? I mean, you know, we wrote our plays collectively, yes. But somehow when you write collectively or if you write satire, you don't get any respect as a playwright. Like, you don't get considered as a playwright. I mean, look at Luis Alfaro, you know? He, he, he did solo work for years. The minute he stopped being a soloist and started just being a writer, he got tons of respect. He, he was a brilliant performer, but he stopped. Um, but we didn't care. You know, we were uh, we were shrugged in the academic circles, didn't take culture clash serious, you know, because we were comedians. When uh, professors would put out anthologies of Latino plays in the 80s and 90s, we were never in them. And it kind of bugged us because, you know, our plays were really popular, you know, and, uh, and they were successful, but they weren't in these anthologies because I guess, I don't know, because we weren't playwrights or we were doing satire. Um, yeah, that's weird. Had you released print versions of them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well ironically, it took a New York-based the theater communications, you know, TCG has published three of our books. So we have three compilations, yeah. Cool. 
you know, it's it's bizarre that it took a New York based uh, publishing instead of a you know a university or you know. But anyway, yeah, we have three books. Mm-hmm. So when you're creating it together, did you do it mostly through improv, and then did somebody write it down, or how did how did that work? No, well, the early work was. Uh, it's always been where somebody takes the lead in something or a scene or, a, you know, our, our plays in the beginning were very modular. It's not a two act structure that told us linear story. There were more like uh, poetry, sketches, monologues, you know, um, music, rapping. So it was very modular and aesthetic. And so it was really about curating the night, curating the, the show. So uh, it, this gave us the opportunity to go off and write our own piece and then bring it back to the group. And, uh, and then it was massaged, you know, with the three of us. People think we improv a lot. We don't. Hmm. We, um, we'll, we'll try things, you know, like in previews a lot. But we stay to the script and then veer off a little bit. And then if people liked it, then we'll go back the next night and add that in. So li- it's a little by little, you know, spicing up. But it's not total improv. People think it is improv. I think that's kind of our trick. It, it looks fresh. It looks like we're improvising, but we're not. Well, you sometimes add in super current news items, right? So yeah, you, it's hard for us not to. Res- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's the other part of us. And I think that's why we don't get respect is because our plays are not sacred in the sense that, you know, mm-hmm. what we write is that's it. You know, that's the, that's the word and you can't change it. No, we're going to change it according to what's happening out there, you know? So our stuff's timely, so we update it constantly. We're not going to talk about, you know, Ronald Reagan anymore. we got this other guy to talk about, you know what I'm saying? Even our old plays, even when we remount old pieces of ours, we update the script, we update the text, because I don't think any text should be museum, you know, a museum piece. I think it should be alive. It should be relevant to people. And that's our philosophy. Our text is not sacred. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. That's part of what makes it exciting and fresh. Um, So do you have like a routine? Is there a typical day for you where like you're painting at some time and you're writing at some time or is it, is every day totally different? Yeah. I think every day is totally different for me. I don't have a routine. I don't even write every day. It's um, well, I am writing every day in a sense that I'm always compiling data, you know, let's, Mm -hmm an idea for a play then my it's like my feelers are really out there like anything that's related to that play I'll latch onto I'll read and I'll put into a, a database in other words and I teach my writing class this way is like you know you have to be an expert of whatever you write about and so you have to have a foundation of history anything that relates to that theme um, any interviews you've heard about that theme just you know, uh, interview people about that thing. So, so I, I compile a big database of the subject matter that I'm researching and it gets to a point where I have so much information and so much energy about it that then I go away and write the play. And that really, really happens. I'll probably like stew on something for six months to a year. And then one weekend I'll say to my wife, bye, I'm going to, I'm going to go write and I'll write a play over the weekend. Cool. Yeah, it's not perfect. I mean, on Monday, I have a first draft of the foundation of the complete script that I want, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't write in pieces. I wait till it's all in me, and then I go for it. I'll come up with an outline, maybe, but I'll come with the outline late. 
I have to know all the whole story. I have to know the whole story first, and then I'm ready to to write about it. Hmm. I saw you're creating a lot of visual art out of this moment. Is there something about the like intensity of the moment that just makes you want to express it visually? Oh yeah, yeah. I think when it comes to theater, it takes you know collaborators. It takes too long for me. I can't wait. You know, I got to express myself now, and you know the, all the anger and sadness that I felt uh, at these past weeks had to come out. And you know, I'm a like I said, I'm a poster maker. I'm an old poster maker, so I had to respond like right now. If I had a silk screen shop downstairs, I would be silk screening posters and putting them up on the walls. I would, but I don't have that <laughs> right now. So. You know, we're in the digital age, so images that I create on my iPad, in a sense, are getting distributed very effectively worldwide, right? It's a new way of poster making. And so, yeah, so I've been doing images. Uh, there's one particular image that really people uh, really loved, and and I said, okay, well, I'll send you the digital file as long as you make a donation to a, you know, a, a black social uh, cause, and uh, we're good. And, and I got like hundreds, hundreds of requests for that, for that image. So that was cool. Yeah, I I saw that. It's really a stunning image. In fact, I'll post it with this. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. If people want to download it, it's such yeah. a powerful. Was that created digitally? Is it a blend of digital and? No, it's a yeah. I have an iPad, you know, um, and I it's all hand drawn, but it's with a digital app called uh, Sketch. Mm-hmm. Mm, cool. Mm-hmm. I like it because, you know, I don't, you know, it's not messy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do it in my, on my couch. I don't have to, you know, have a studio. So I, I, I like it. I like it because I remember the old still screen days. Oh boy. Very messy. Yeah. Things have changed a lot. When I first moved to the Bay area, I was also like cutting and pasting posters. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. Um, you did a solo performance about Picasso where you were creating new paintings on stage every night. Were they different every night? No, they, it was the same. They were the same paintings every night because I wanted, you know, some consistency. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I would actually sell a painting at the end. At the end, I would sell one of the paintings and always oh, sold it every night. It was great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a a weekend with Pablo Picasso is a real important piece in my career because I think it's the it's the piece that blends in all the acting I've learned and all the visual art tricks I know. So that I've, I'm, you know, I was able to put all that knowledge into that one play. And I, so I'm really, you know, proud of it. And, and I'll probably end up, you know, doing it forever. It's kind of like my Walt Whitman piece, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to do, I'm going to do it until I die. Cause I, you know, I play him as a 78 year old man anyway. So I'm not 78 yet, so I get to play until, until I, you know, Picasso died uh, creating till he was 90 in 91, you know, he was painting that day. So he was a great inspiration for me as far as like being the artist 24 seven, you know, always creating something. He had to create something every day, mm-hmm. whether, whether it was, you know, a plate, a, a vase, a painting, a poetry, even wrote plays. Really? I didn't know he wrote plays. Yeah, he wrote uh, surrealistic plays. Yeah, he he wrote a couple. Oh, wow. Really I weird. Have... You know, they're real surreal, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because he comes from that, you know, that that time. Yeah. I heard in the in an interview you did about that, you said um, that you wanted the play to talk about how does an artist stay hungry and creative and passionate after so many years? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if there's lessons that you 
came across in studying him that you take in for yourself? Like, how do you stay hungry and hungry. passionate and creative? Well, can I can I recite a monologue from that play that talks oh, about? Definitely, yeah, that'd be great. My early years in Paris were très difficile, very difficult. I was destitute. When I made my first etchings, I tried to sell them at five francs each and found no buyers. So I gave all my etchings away to friends. Now those etchings are worth $5,000 or more. During my so-called blue period, no one would sell my paintings because they were getting ruined by the leaks coming in through my roof. Now those paintings are worth dollars $300,000 or more. It is the success of my youth that has become my protective wall. The sales of the blue period, the rose period, they're screens that have sheltered me to be able to do everything I wanted to do later in life. I tell you this because I know you all aspire to be artists. It is often said that an artist should work for himself, for the love of art and scorn success. This is a false idea. An artist needs success, not only to live, but to fully realize his vision. When you have something to express, any form of submission becomes unbearable. You have to have the courage to answer your calling. I was often penniless, hungry in Paris, but I always resisted the temptation to work by any means other than my painting. The second profession is a trap. Are you someone that hates the work you do? You work and you work so that you can have pleasure on the weekend? Never permit a dichotomy to rule your life. Your work must give you as much pleasure as your spare time. Everything I do in connection with art brings me great joy. If I can't work, I can't breathe. Give me a gallery and I will fill it. Your work must be the ultimate seduction, the ultimate pleasure. Never forget that. So there it is. Wow. Yeah. We don't take advantage of this time on earth and, and, and be an artist every day. Then what are we doing? Right. That's, that's our calling. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I, yeah. I have no, no patience for like lazy artists. Cause you know, if, if you're really an artist, that's what you should be doing every day, every hour. If that's what you are, do it. So the <laughs> joy of it, the seduction of the work itself is what keeps it fresh. As long as you're oh, yeah. following the passion and following the yeah, that's why I said in the earlier in the interview that I'm basically the same guy I was when we first started Culture Clash, you know? Mm-hmm. Same guy. I have the same, um, you know, passion and curiosity and, you know, anger and <laughs> all these things that motivated me back then as, as, as a young guy, I still have now. Thank God, you know, because a lot of people change when they get older. They get pragmatic, you know? I mean, for example, this whole... Um, I was a big Bernie Sanders supporter, still am. Um, a lot of the people I grew up with, you know, progressive guys, you know, progressive people, 
back in the 80s are like, well, Bernie's a little too radical now. You know, I'm going to go with this other guy. I'm going to go with the, the safe bet. You know, I'm like, who are you? Have you lost all the ideology and all the hope that we had, you know, back as youth? Yeah, well, now, you know, I have a business, I have kids, blah, 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 blah. blah. Just tons of excuses to not be uh, progressive anymore, you know? And I'm that same guy. I'm the same kid. So, you know, protest is a young man's game. I've been to a couple of protests, BML ones, but they were more like, you know, with kids and, and, and parents. But if I was, you know, 20, 30, I mean, 20, 25, oh man, I would have been out there every day, you know, because it, it is, it is a young man's game. It really is. You know, I, don't, I can't run, I can't outrun the bullet. So, you know, I, uh, you know. <laughs> well, this is such an intense moment in this country, right? Between the coronavirus and the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and having the worst president in our memory, what do you see the role of artists being in this moment? Good yeah. question. I think it, I see a silver lining. I really do. Um, again, the artists are going to lead the way, but I think we can't go back to normal. We cannot go back to business as usual. Now is a great time for another narrative, you know, another way of looking at things. You know, I think with a shutdown for two months was great. It, it, it exposed all the, um, the fragility of our theater, for example. You know, one day you're performing, the next day you're not performing. You know, that's really delicate, you know? Yeah. And theaters, the theaters that hire us, you know, they're freaking out because they can't sell tickets. They're freaking out because they have to pay rent, they have to sell tickets, blah, blah, blah. So, so it made me seem, oh, I see. So, huh, it's not about art anymore, right? It's about commerce. And, you know, a lot of organizations, who did they lay off first? The artists, the technicians, the people who actually put on the shows, that do the shows. And, you know, they kept their marketing directors, they kept their uh, development directors. All those people still had salaries. So how can you call yourself an art organization if you're not even hiring artists? You know, they're the first ones to go. And then they're like freaking out going, oh, wow, well, we have to stay connected to our subscribers. They're going to forget about us. Oh, I know. Let's call the artists to come and do virtual works for us. And so, yeah. So, yeah, I'm part of that. You know, of course, I got to make a living. So, yeah, they call me to do virtual stuff for them and I'm doing it. But I'm being really critical. I'm going, you know what's happening here, right? You're just exposing yourselves how it's like uh, Oz's curtain has been, you know, shifted back and we're seeing really the mechanism of how art is done in this country and it's just wrong it's it's wrong the commerce is first and the art is second so how how did we get to that point you know and so i'm looking at different models let's say uh you know this gigantic 1000 seat theater right why don't we break those up into five little theaters of 200 give each theater a to an ensemble or a, a people of color ensembles and let them, you know, program their program for 200. You know what I'm saying? Imagine how exciting that would be to go into a theater and there's five different shows going on by five different cultures or whatever. And uh, instead of, you know, going in there to see the music man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. The economic model of theater is flawed. I don't know what the solution is, like how they can pay their rent and stay afloat. It's tricky. Well, you have to look at other models. I mean, 
everyone's working virtually now, right? Everybody, the marketing, everybody is at home. Why do you even need a space, um, uh, uh, administrative space? I'm talking, I'm talking about not the theater. So I'm thinking you gotta, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need huge buildings with administrative offices and Maybe we just need the space for rehearsal and production, and that's it. We don't need a right, mission. Yeah, because we we hope to get to a moment where we can gather again. I mean, virtual doesn't give us what live theater gives us, right? But yeah. Oh no, no, yeah, no, yeah. I'm talking about yeah. I'm talking administratively. I think we could do it virtually, but yeah, the art, yeah, the art is uh, has to. We have to gather again, and that's where we're probably going to be the last to you know, work, right? Because we're going to probably be the last phase, in other words, where they're going to let us sit together in a theater. That's going to probably take six months at least. I'm antsy about it because I don't, I don't like this virtual thing too much. You don't like the readings that I've been seeing. They're kind of like, "Mm." you have to be in there, even a reading, you have to be in the room, right? It's definitely more fun and more exciting if you're in the room mm-hmm. because the energy between the audience and the yeah audience, yeah all that that's yeah. what the community gathering all of that yeah 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 you've written plays inspired by Shakespeare and Moliere and various historical things and I'm curious about what is it about a particular moment or a particular work that gets you like oh yeah I want to bring this into today. Well, for example, uh, a year, you know, two years ago, the Me Too movement was really uh, strong. And I was researching a play. I was trying to adapt another classic. And then I fell upon um, The School of Wives by Moliere. Mm. And silly play about a man who has a, a wife being educated uh, in a nunnery where they're going to teach her how to be the perfect wife, you know, the, the Serbian perfect wife. And I'm like, oh my God, that is so like wrong, right? In the in the in the age of Me Too, right? Uh, maybe not in the 16th century. That was probably common, but um, even then, it was pretty sexist. But um, but it's super sexist now. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. What well, you know? So I said that would be really interesting to revive and and bring back now. And so what I did is I set the play in in the most macho country of the world, Mexico. <laughs> the most macho people, which are the narco traficantes, you know, the narco guys, and mm-hmm. set this uh, this kind of this farce in Sinaloa with narcos. This this narco guy, he has a a, a young girl in a nunnery <laughs> waiting to be his perfect wife, and of course she's not going to be that way. And that's what the fun is. So it's a it's a total farce. It's you know it's silly, but but it had you know luckily with the Me Too movement, it had kind of like this uh, you know this little bit of a political wink to it too. Yeah. <laughs> Are you working on any new projects right now? Yeah. Um, there's two virtual plays that I'm excited about. A couple of years ago, I, I co-wrote a play called Beach Town with uh, Rachel Grossman, Dog and Pony from DC. It's mm. a, an adaptation of Beer Town, their Beer Town. And basically it's a fake town. It's a fake town called Beach Town, which resembles San Diego. And we have a fake city council and, you know, fake citizens. And we have a, a, a city council meeting. And so I said, wow, that would be interesting to put that on, you know, because city council now have to meet virtually, right? They have to do Zoom meetings. So I thought, wow, this would be a great, great adaptation to have my city council go on Zoom and talk about, you know, COVID-19 and things like that that are affecting the little town. 
And people, the audience, the people on Zoom that come on can actually do community comments and comment about what the city council is talking about. So it's really, uh, it's real engagement, real immersive, interactive. And I, I yeah, we, we, we premiered it last Wednesday. It was great. It, it was just fun. Oh, that's great. So you're really using the medium. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, like I said, I don't like zoom, but this way I'm really using zoom is the delivery system, you know, zoom is the stage. And so that works really well for me. Yeah. yeah. Are you planning to perform that one again? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a series. It's a series. Uh, every oh. Wednesday on San Diego rep every Wednesday at 7 PM is live and you can get on it and interact with the actors and then it's on Facebook and stuff after that. But seven o'clock uh, Pacific time. Oh, cool. And then Culture Clash, uh, La Jolla Playhouse has hired us to do, they didn't care what we gave them. They just wanted something from us. And so we're, uh, we've created uh, the uh, totally Latino fake news. Oh. Like a, uh, a sketch show, news show, very fast paced, irreverent. Uh, for like, it's, it's like a 10 minute show every week. And that just, that opened this week as well. Oh, cool. Well, speaking of fake news, that seems like a great segue into talking about the monologue I heard you do on Democracy in America. Uh, oh, yeah. Where you were talking about the idea of white Jesus. Tell me about how, what was the, the process? You guys were going around the country interviewing people? Yes, yes. For for many years, we did plays that were site specific, uh, based on oral histories, and uh, we met a we met a retired African American preacher in Washington, uh, D.C. He was retired, but he preached and grew up in Louisiana. He basically told us how growing up as an African American, you know, you grow up with this image of a white savior, you know, a white Jesus. So that's that's really heavy duty, and, and Latinos too. Everybody, right? So people of color, basically, if you're a Christian, grow up with the white savior image, right? And I mean, if that isn't deep and psychological, then I don't know what is. You know what I'm saying? That is like that that affects your life. You know, that affects the way you look at things and and, and how you look at yourself. You know. So anyway, I'll, this is what he said to me. Okay. Okay. If you look at the history of black people in the South, and if you was black and grew up on a plantation, your only escape was the church. That was the appeal of the Baptists, independence, freedom, and you could seek out your own life. Now, I don't know what your experience has been, but the general kind of experience growing up in the South for white people was this. You're white. Life is good. <laughs> you better than other folk. And God has blessed you and has smiled upon you. And Jesus is white and so forth and so on. Now you got a black child grows up in the South, goes off to college somewhere up North. He or she will then soon begin to study the geography. He or she will then soon figure that Jesus was over there, over there in the Middle East and so forth and so on. And then you begin to figure, well, 
if Jesus was blonde and blue-eyed, how did he get over there? How can they get it inside their heads with any sense of geography to conclude that Jesus was a white man? It's an impossibility. An impossibility. Now, as a preacher, I don't care what he was. Don't care what he was. Growing up here in Alabama, for anyone to suggest that Jesus was black or brown would have been awful. Awful. Desecration of the image of Christ. Desecration of the image of Christ. But when you begin to study all the Eurocentric theologies, the essence of divinity, the way Jesus was presented to us going way back to the old paintings and gravings and etchings and sculptures and so forth and so on, one has to ask oneself, how in the world did Jesus go from looking like Osama bin Laden to Brad Pitt? <laughs> the Jesus who was presented to me, to us, was a lie. Wow. Now, he didn't preach it that way, you know. That's where the art comes in, where he, he just told us this story, and then I, I converted it into a, uh, a sermon on stage. Yeah, that's amazing. That's heavy. I mean, that's just, to me, that's like the genesis right there, right, of uh, the nugget of racism. Yeah, and you said one white many, one of many was the first fake news, right? Right, it's the first fake news, you're right. That's how I ended. I did. <laughs> the original fake news, yeah. Oh, the original fake news. White Jesus, the original fake news. So yeah, that's uh, it's heavy duty. Yeah. Wow. You do amazing um, impressions of, of voices, you know, really capturing. I mean, I've heard you do a lot of them over the years. Are there any uh, sort of new characters in your arsenal? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, uh, I, I adapt to what the situation uh, requires, you know. Yeah. Uh, I have a good ear, you know. Oh, I love accents. I love accents. I love how people talk, you know. It's, yeah, it really uh, helps with the character for sure if you get the accent down. I know you were doing, was it Bernie Sanders' Latino brother? <laughs> I was doing Bernie Sanders, yes. I'm Bernardo, um, Bernie's Latino brother. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> and on that note. That's right. Well, is the, have I missed anything important? Is there anything you'd like to add um, that I have forgot to ask? <laughs> no, I think we covered. We, we, no, no stone unturned. Yeah. Well, right. Tanya, it was so good to speak with you. Thank you. You too. It's really great to see you after all these years. And I'm just so inspired by, you know, your continued fire and creativity and fighting the good fight. And thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Please join me again next time when I'll be talking to the wonderful singer-songwriter, Noe Venable. Until then, take good care and stay off leash.